Hello and welcome to episode three, season two of this spiritual fix, The Truth Never Dies, the first in a three-part series about the teachings of the Buddha and how they can apply to your life. Stay tuned. This spiritual fix. Two mystical mamas hacking the self-help game. With Anna Stromquist and Christina Wilson. Hi, I'm Anna. And I'm Christina. Hi, Anna. And this <laughs> Hi Chris. And this is This, this spiritual, spiritual Fix. Fix. <laughs> We're so in r- rhythm, can't you tell yeah. that it's just amazing? Yeah. Play yeah. really well off each other, we've been told. <laughs> I want to just start by saying that in the beginning of all our episodes, we do what we've been calling hot chaff, which is where we just chat for about five, 10 minutes about a seemingly unrelated topic before we move on to the topic at hand. But yeah. we actually pick the topic of our hot chaff that will relate to the topic in an indirect way. And it's also a way for our listeners just to get us know to know us better as people. Well, Chris, what did you discover this morning? So this is like this proves kind of the podcast that I've listened to historically. There's a podcast that's one of my was one of my favorite podcasts, and it's kind of still continues to be. And they they're Australian, and they call a segment that they have hot chaff. And to me, it's just like a bunch of kind of like different short topics that you can cover. And that's kind of how I translated it, even though I feel like I should recognize Australian humor to some extent, because I spent some time there. But like, basically, I looked it up today. And it turns out it means that it's useless, or we don't believe it. And then not only that, but it's hot chaff. So it's kind of like hot bullshit is kind of what it translates to. And we don't mean for that at all because we, we actually not believe. Yeah, because we-, we actually believe all the stuff that we're talking about. It's not BS to us. Yeah. So we should not have called any of that hot chaff. We should have called it the prelude. Yeah. Or fun facts about our amazing universe or something like that. I'm going to do, I'm putting it down on recording to start doing some on TikTok. Cause I have so many crazy facts about the world and so many different things about the mysterious nature of the world. So if you want to follow us on TikTok at the spiritual fit, you can see some of that. Anna has done some absolutely incredible videos for us on TikTok. And it's been a lot of fun for us to kind of use that medium as well as the podcast, right? Oh yeah. I find TikTok very fun. Yes. So before we get into today's episode, which is going to be the Eightfold Noble Path, which yes. sounds boring, but I am being assured by my higher guide, Archangel <laughs> Michael, that it's not going to be a boring episode. I swear to God. And I, not only her higher guides, but like, that's me being like, I studied Buddhism and was into Buddhism and like still am to a certain extent for so long. And I was like, do we really have to talk about the, I was like, I'm just going to trust Archangel Michael that this is going to be awesome. So I'm really looking forward to this episode despite. So aren't we great at selling our episode here? (laughs) Yeah, I think I'm just a little bit irreverent. It's going to be a good episode. I got a sign. Today, I was told yesterday by Archangel Michael to change the topic and to make it about the Eightfold Noble Path, and then he gave me a very big sign of the number eight today. So 
No, let no, but I, but in all seriousness, that's what I feel like we try and do here on the spiritual fix is to make things that feel like they're theory and very almost inaccessible and make it so that like, this is how it's we've experienced. Yeah. In We're going to break down Buddha's eightfold noble path into a very easy, understandable way that a high schooler can get it, that yeah. a stay at home mom with two children crying at their boobs can get it yeah. that the businessman driving to work, listening to the, Oh, that's sexist that I, it's we're going right. to break it down. <laughs> it's all our unconscious bias coming out. It's my just, unconscious just bias coming it, out, yeah. but we're going to make it, we're going to make it that anyone now can understand what Buddha was getting at. It shouldn't be so esoteric. Yep. Yep. But before we get into that, we're going to go into our prelude. And I thought I heard the most interesting thing. We're going to talk about a little follow-up to one of our primal wounds, which was injustice. And Anna, you told me the most interesting fact last night about how often people are listening to that wound versus okay. the other. Let me just tell you that people have binged on our season one, especially primal wounds. But if you look at the statistics, the least listened to episode of all of them is the injustice wound. And it is statistically significant. We're talking half as many downloads for that wound than any of the other wounds, which is ironic because it's right smack in the middle. So we can't say it has to do with, well, they started the series and stop or, you know, it's right in the middle, you know, and the two, the, the ones after and the ones before got lots of downloads. So why did injustice get the least amount of downloads? It's because people with injustice wounds are never wrong. Little hint. I think there's also a fair amount of triggering on either side with injustice. So if they see something about it, and there's so many podcasts about injustice from, from voices that need to speak about injustice and, you know, maybe, maybe it coming from our perspective, from a spiritual perspective may not be considered no. the authority in that. And I get that. It, that was not the reason why, Chris. <laughs> that was not the reason. All right, fine. You're right, Anna. The reason is, is that the, the least likely to self-reflect and apologize and recognize they're wrong are people with injustice wounds. To them, it's not an injustice, a perceived injustice. It's a true injustice. And so I think that the people that have injustice wounds are not going to find this, that episode interesting. Yep. Yep. And so what I wanted to follow up about with injustice was this kind of interesting experience that I've had because Anna and I have talked about how we all kind of have our own cocktail of wounds. We all have, we have all five wounds and they show up in different ways in different places. And for me, I think that if we have all five wounds, if we have a very, very large event that has happened in our life, like a big trauma, something, something big that's happened in our life, that's kind of defined it from a certain point, then there's chances that you can have flavors of every single wound inside of that. And this is, this is my understanding based on the work that I've been doing in the last couple of weeks, because what I came to Mother's Day for, for those of you who don't know, um, and you can go back to season one, episode eight to hear more about kind of my experience with childhood grief is that my mother passed away when I was six and Mother's Day, little did I know until Anna, Anna's husband, prescient husband, or not prescient husband, but you know, <laughs> enlightened husband basically pointed this out. But I've always had a problem with Mother's Day. I've always had a really, really hard time with it um, ever since she passed away. And I didn't recognize that. Like, even when I became a mom, I was like, this holiday sucks. And, er and your husband, what did your husband do, Anna? Oh, well, he said, well, the well, first thing I have to say is like my very first mother's day, I called one of my best friends, Michelle crying. I'm like, Michelle, 
this was the worst Mother's Day. I was looking so forward to my first Mother's Day and it sucked. And, and Michelle, mother of four, goes, oh, Anna, Mother's Day fucking sucks. Just get over it now. <laughs> that was that was her that was her sage advice she's like get the fuck over it and even now whenever we call we, when, sometimes when we we're chatting she goes remember that time you called me from your first mother's day saying boo hoo mother's day sucks <laughs> she's she's quite funny no that's hilarious yeah, that's, that's really funny she's a like, mother's day fucking sucks okay yeah yeah so so she gave that was her sage mother advice for me but that's good advice yeah anyway so i just like after michelle you know, gave me that talk. I just like stopped expecting anything for Mother's Day just because Mother's Day is really hard, especially I think for those of us who've experienced loss of a mother, abandonment from a mother, bad relationships with the mother, like just any kind of those toxic mother situations. It's just, it can be a rough day, especially when it appears it isn't, but it appears like everyone else is having a great time. Mother's Day had come and my husband sweetly brought me breakfast in bed. And then I started to pick a fight with him over God knows what. Okay. I don't even know what, what it was. And then he comes to me, he goes, Anna, I noticed a habit of yours, which is that every single mother's day you pick a fight with me. And I really don't want that to happen this mother's day. Will you please just enjoy today? And I'm like, okay. And he walked away and I'm all, oh fuck. Like he's right. Like I always find some excuse to get mad at him on mother's day because it's a really hard holiday for me. And Hey, it's so easy not to address your own pain and frustration by creating a bullshit argument with your spouse so that you don't have to actually deal with your shit. I just was like, you know what, whatever shit for me today, if any does, I'll deal with it later. But for today, let me just enjoy it. Let me just enjoy it. And I did. I caught myself like two more times about to pick a fight with my husband over just bullshit. I caught myself both times. No fight occurred. I just, you know, saw it. And then after it, I was done. It was like, it was like this old habit or something. And I was like, I nipped it in the bud and the rest of the day was great. I actually had the best mother's day ever, ever like, you know, and I, I could, whatever upset me that I wanted to pick a fight with, I couldn't remember the next day to pick the fight with him. So mm-hmm. clearly it was just bullshit. So I told Chris that because she was telling me how Mother's Day was hard for her. And I wanted to give her Michelle's sage advice and just say, Mother's Day fucking sucks. <laughs> but I just told you what, what you know, I, I think I told you that. And then I said, Anne, you know, today was my best, my favorite, my best Mother's Day yet. And because we started the day off with Eric helping me recognize that I that I, that I make it suck. Yep. Yep. And, uh, it's funny that cause like, I, it was, I cannot even remember what psychosis I was in. I was like to that point where I was like, it was the end of the day. Like Luke had, had gone away the whole day. And we like talked about how in the future I want like a mixture of my own time and also time with the family. Cause it's nice, but like it was the end of the day and we we're having our business meeting. And I literally just picked a fight. Like it was like the thinnest hair that I was just trying. And it was like a mile long and I was trying to hold it and pull it and not break it. Like it was like that, you know, like trying to pull him towards a fight. And he was like, I literally am not taking this bait. And he's just like, I, it was just the craziest thing. And then what I recognized was that with holidays, birthdays, mother's day, whatever you want to call that are particularly triggering you need an emotional release of some sort and picking a fight is one of the best things that you can do. Especially picking a fight with someone who loves you as, as I, as I saw in this 
fittingly enough, Instagram, the child behaves the worst with the parent they trust the most, meaning like you're home with your kids and they act like jerks and then someone else shows up and they act like angels. You're like, what? Well, they're comfortable with you. So like, no offense, it's a bad thing. But like, if your spouse is picking a fight with you on an, a, on a holiday, probably it's because they really trust you. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of sucks, but yeah. it's true. Yeah. So how this relates back to injustice and the whole thing about how certain big traumas may hold all the wounds in them and you kind of have to unlock them like this big, amazing shadow present. I finally got to injustice with my mom, which was really big for me because after I had this fight with Luke, or I tried to start this fight with Luke and he didn't really take it, even though I was probably still mean. And then Anna told me, yeah, this really sucks. And this is what Eric said. I was like, all right, I have something that I need to deal with, with this in particular. And I've come a long way and you guys have probably heard me come all this way of like coming from this place where we started this podcast, where I couldn't even remember a lot of the things all I knew is that I couldn't really remember this person and this person had been kind of disappeared for me because nobody really wanted to keep this person around who, who was still left. So like my immediate family didn't necessarily have fond memories. So this person was, dis you know, my mother was kind of disappeared and then kind of, I was centered everything around trying to figure out the memories. And then when I kind of came to this realization that like not having the memories was okay. And also the behavior that I had after she died was also a grief stricken child. Like I kind of went through this whole, whole journey, right. And kind of went through a lot of body betrayal stuff, which was a result of this. I went through a lot of abandonment stuff when we were going through that primal wound. All of this was, there was always a faction of any experience that I had with the wounds. There was always something that had to do with my mom, but never injustice, not yet. And that night on Mother's Day, I finally got pissed off at the world for taking away a woman when she was 39 years old, when her kids were six and nine years old, who wanted to be an actress, who was, you know, wanted to be a director, who was in a new relationship, who had just gotten a brand new dog, who had finally gotten her own house that she wanted and um, thought that she had gotten rid of the cancer that, that ended up killing her. And I was just like, all right, I'm pissed. I'm pissed at the world. This was not fair. It wasn't fair to me. It wasn't fair to her. It wasn't fair to anyone. And by doing that, anyway, go ahead. You, you go ahead. I have one thought, but yeah. Oh no, no, I have nothing to say. No. Listening. And by, by doing that, it made it so that I could stop blaming her. Cause, cause if you listen to last season, you'll hear that there was a lot of like really bad memories that I had about my mom too. And I realized that it was easier for me to villainize her mm -hmm. than it was for me to miss her. And if I could villainize her instead of missing her, then that was fine. And if I could villainize her, then it wasn't an injustice that she died. It was just fate. It was like, oh, well she didn't deal with her shit. So she died. Yeah. So maybe it would hurt less. Like, like I'm coming to believe after doing that season that the, that the wound you think you don't have is mm -hmm. actually maybe the strongest one because it's the most hidden one. And like, I think Freud and Jung would agree that like the thing you can't see, the thing that's out of your awareness is maybe running the show more than the stuff you can see. Yeah. So yeah. like, if you couldn't see the injustice wound, if you did everything in your power to protect you from feeling injustice about this, maybe that was the, the deepest or most painful wound in, in 
the smorgasbord of wounds. Maybe, maybe I was definitely when it came to her, like if I thought of, if, if I could think that I have all the wounds all the time about like lots of different things. And then I have my own little special compartment of five wounds with her. It was definitely the deepest was that, you know, having gone through all the rest of them and recognized all the other, the presence of all the other wounds when it came to her. And then seeing that this was the bottom one that was like, Oh, so fundamentally there's nothing you can do for unfairness like that when people get taken and, and we say people get taken as if they're getting taken. It's like, what the fuck is this world? Sorry. I'm just like, <laughs> he keeps, yeah. like, right. you know what I mean? Like even the language that we have around it is as if it is the fates that are sitting there with their, their threads. And they're just like, one of them's measuring the thread and the other one's holding it and the other one's cutting it. And sorry, if it happens to be somebody near you, that seems really fucking unfair, <laughs> but so how are you, what's your, what are you doing with it? So what I'm doing with it is I am trying to miss her. I'm trying to miss her because what that does is it basically, it, I like, I have a picture of her on my phone now and I'm just like, I'm trying to memorialize her in my own way because by memorializing her, I'm missing her, which means I'm not villainizing her, which means I can actually deal with my injustice and it's not hiding be, behind a mask of the harsh critic of the villainizer, right? It's right. not hiding behind that mask anymore. And so by missing her, I just, I don't know, it, it, it's healing the injustice womb. It's almost like an indirect way of healing injustice. And it's been really good. That's great. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts on injustice or is that just I'm, my, I, 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 I think I went over it in our bonus. Oh, you did. You did. Cool. Yeah. So, so that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. It's been good. We all, I mean, I've, I've had people ask me, people who have had sessions with about the primal wounds since a lot of people are contacting me now to have sessions for that. I love it. And I love talking to them and some, and sometimes that kind of experiential system of like, how exactly do I deal with this when I find it and I get this awareness, like, how do I process it out of my body? And sometimes it is just a matter of, maybe it's not a matter of getting angry at the world for the injustice. Maybe it's a matter of missing the person, or maybe it's a matter of mourning the experience that you didn't have because this got taken away from you. Sometimes it's not a direct button to push. Sometimes it's like a lever and you have to move something else and then it starts moving. And I, I always, I help people, but I also tell people to trust their instinct about it because a lot of people know how to solve it, even if it doesn't sound normal or regular or, you know, like it feels illogical but your body knows how to process things out of it. So onto the Dhammapada. Onto the Dhammapada. Onto the Eightfold Noble Path. Mm -hmm. Buddha. Gautama. 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 Gautama, the Buddha. All right. So moving right along to the Eightfold Noble Path. So just a little bit of background. We've touched upon a lot of this in a lot of the other episodes, but we're going to just put it all in one place here. When Buddha died, anyone that Buddha... Okay. So there's like three kinds of Buddhas. <laughs> According to start Buddha. from the beginning. There's three types of Buddhas. Start, yep. There's three types of Buddhas. Okay. <laughs> you got, I, I forget the word, Savisavasama Buddha. I, I, don't quote me on the name because I don't remember them, but there's like Supreme Buddha. Mm -hmm. And then there's like Buddha. And then there's Arhant, right? Mm -hmm. So Supreme Buddha is like a Buddha who gets enlightened 
which for anyone who isn't that familiar with like what that means, it's like basically Christ-like consciousness. Okay. So like, you know, Jesus Christ or the Messiah, the Jews are waiting for, they embody the ultimate freedom. They're totally empty. They're at the zero state that we're, we're talking about. Like, let's get to zero. Let's get to zero. Let's get yeah. to that zero state where that we're like, we don't react to anything. And in our emptiness, all that's left is love. Like that's the true enlightened state. So a Supreme Buddha is one who has attained that, but then can teach you how to get to it too. So there's, and then, so a Buddha is someone who's attained it, but the Supreme Buddha is someone who like didn't attain it by mistake. Like say Eckhart Tolle, for example, he is a great example of someone who like got enlightened, but he doesn't know how the fuck it happens. He's like, I don't know. I like, I went I into my, dep- some, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I went into my depression and, I, da, 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 and then I woke up and boom, everything was different. He can't give you like a step-by-step guide how to get enlightened. So he's would be called, he would not be a Supreme Buddha, but, but Gautama, the Buddha, which was Siddhartha Gautama, a prince, he did like systematically get there. So he could systematically teach people how to get there. Mm -hmm. So he's considered a a Supreme Buddha. Yeah. And then underneath that is you have the Arhans. I think that a regular, regular Buddha, because you know, this is like, they're just everywhere. A regular Buddha is someone who got enlightened by their own means. And an Arhant is someone who got to the first stage of enlightenment. So the difference between an Arhat and a Buddha is that a Buddha realizes enlightenment on its own and an Arhat was guided to enlightenment by a teacher. Okay. So that makes sense. Okay. So you got your Supreme Buddha, which is Buddha who figured it out and got a system. You got your regular Buddha, which is someone like Eckhart Tolle who got enlightened through their own means. And then you have the Arhat who was facilitated to get, they were apprenticed into Buddhahood, you know? So there's that. So anyways, when Buddha died, they took all the Arhats meaning anyone he facilitated getting enlightened in their life, they brought them all together. There was, you know, I think hundreds or thousands, don't quote me on the number. There was a lot of them. They got them all together. They're like, okay, he just died. We don't want to lose his teachings. Let's get together and all agree on what he said while it's still fresh in our minds so that we can keep his knowledge alive forever and not let it get, you know, you know, the game of telephone, like one person says one thing and da, 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 da. So they transcribed everything Buddha said into the Dhammapada which is the things I'm going to talk about today, which is the, the, the direct teachings of the Buddha, which is the Dhammapada. And so Buddha actually spoke Pali, the Pali canon, and he would actually chant these things. So a lot of them were then interpreted into chanting because he basically would like have these lectures where he would give his teachings, his, you know, sermons or whatever, but he had said it so many times for his whole life that he kind of like turned it into his own little chant. Our hunts were, were able to like, transcribe and and document all those teachings. That's the Dhammapada. And I like that because it feels like it's more true. Like there are types of Buddhism where it's all about worshiping Buddha and seeing Buddha as a God and all that. But I, I like the type of Buddhism, which is the Theravada tradition, which is very like, this is what Buddha said. And this is what we're going to try to be so that we can be more like Buddha. We're not going to worship him. Like a great analogy is, you know, Buddha's pointing at the moon and the worshipy type of people are worshiping his hand, but the people who really get his message are looking at the moon, you know? So as much as we can, we need to look at the moon. And I feel like, I hope I don't step on anyone's toes here, but I, that's also how I feel about Christianity is like, Jesus was pointing to a moon. He's like, Hey, everyone, 
like, look over there. Let's be like this. Let's do this. And all these people are looking at his hand, worshiping him. But I don't think Jesus ever wanted it to be worship. He wanted people to be like him. He wanted people to embody the Christ-like mentality um, and not be worshiped. And the same thing with Buddha. He didn't want to be worshiped. He wanted people to transform their lives, get to the zero state and become loving. And he was pointing at the moon and the moon is, is the Dhammapada essentially. Yep. Okay. Good analogy. Is that anything that works? That's perfect. Yep. So before we go into the eightfold noble path, we're going to talk about the four noble truths. So what is a noble truth? A noble truth is a universal truth, meaning, Hey, it doesn't matter if the missionaries got to you in the jungle and told you about Jesus so you can be saved. You know, it, it doesn't mean like, it doesn't matter where in the world you live. These four truths are true to each and every human soul on this planet everywhere. Like, yeah, to every child, adult, baby, you know, no matter who you are, these are four universal truths for yeah. all. You could use the analogy of like in the scientific system, there is theory and there's, you know, like thesis and theory. And then if it's really true, it's a law. Right. And so these truths are equivalent to a scientific law in the sense that you want to just base your life off of the most true things and not just what somebody thinks about those true things. Right. So here are the four noble truths. Number one, life contains dukkha, meaning life contains suffering. Some people will say, Buddha said life is suffering. That is not what Buddha said. He didn't say life is suffering. He said life has suffering in it, that there is inevitable suffering in life. No one can escape it. The have and the have nots will all experience suffering. So truth number one, every human being will experience suffering in their lifetime. Agreed? Mm-hmm. Agreed. <laughs> number two, there are three universal causes of suffering. They are craving, aversion, and ignorance. Craving means wanting what you don't have or wanting what isn't there. Okay. Mm-hmm. I want, I want this car and I don't have it. I want to be this and I'm not that. So craving means craving what you do not have or craving what is not there. So wanting, desiring what isn't there. Right. So that's the craving of the ice cream or that's the craving of the car or that's the addictions that we have to something that we don't currently have. Like, right. and it's, Or yeah. I wish, you know, I wish my spouse would do blah, blah, blah. That's craving. Okay. Aversion, meaning hatred, meaning I don't like what is, or I don't like what I have. So then that would be the, 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 the spouse thing. It would now be, well, I don't like that. She looks like that or, you know, yeah. Or I'd be so happy if they only didn't do this. So that's almost like craving and aversion. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah. So you got craving aversion and ignorance, ignorance, meaning a misunderstanding of how craving and aversion actually are playing in your life just ignorance in general to you, like ignorance to your, your mental habits, ignorance to the relationship of these ignorance to truth. Yeah. A lot of people would compare this to, if you want to use analogous language is that they would be like, you're asleep. Is that, is you're just an ignorance? Cause you're just not even, you think that people can't change. And so you never try and there would be never, you're never questioning anything. You're just kind of Sitting in your life. Yeah. Yeah. Living a service level life. Some would say, you know, ignorance is bliss. Buddha would say, no, ignorance is the cause of your suffering. Wake the fuck up. Okay. So the four noble truths, one life has suffering Two, there are three causes of suffering. Now three, number three is guess what guys, there's a way out of suffering. (laughs) 
<laughs> which is why three. we're bringing this message to you today because we don't just yes. want to tell you that life is yeah. full of suffering. We don't want to like number three is so important. If you're going to tell anybody about number one that life has suffering in it, please mention number three that there is a way out of suffering because otherwise they really change the really order around. Shitty. Yeah, they should change the order. It's really shitty. Like, hey, guess what? Life sucks. And no, no, no. Life can suck, but it cannot suck. Yes. No a way and, out of it. Not sucking. And I get the order because it's like a logic statement. Like I used to do in engineering class and whatever, like with, with physics where you had to be like, eh, this is this. So therefore this is this. So therefore this is this, you get to the right. point where you're like, yep. And there's a door, there's All an right. exit. There's an exit. Yep. So number four is the path out of suffering is the eightfold noble path. Didn't there we go. There's the intro to the eightfold noble path. There is suffering, which is universal. Number two, there is a cause of suffering, which is universal craving, aversion, ignorance. There is a way out of suffering, thank God. And number four, if you want to get out of suffering, just follow the eightfold noble path. Why is it called fold? Eightfold. eightfold. Gosh. <laughs> questions that are kind of irrelevant but you know relevant <laughs> questions eight eightfold maybe because it's eight parts i'm googling eightfold meaning eight times okay claims have grown eightfold in 10 years means claims have grown eight times in 10 years so they're almost like additive is what they're trying to say so if you do one then you're going to just add if you add something else okay i get it cool all right what well, no what does that mean i don't understand um, so if you say, if you say eightfold, it means it multiplied, it's like, it's multiplied itself. So if you have a hundred and, and then you eightfold a hundred, you get 800, right? So the point okay, is, so if is you just do like, one thing on the path, you're okay. You do eight things on the path. You're eight times as many, many as exactly. Awesome. Exactly. Okay. All Very right. important so stuff. What is the, <laughs> very important. Okay. So now we're going to go through what is the eightfold noble path? We're going to go, I'm going to just tell you what the eight things are. And then we're going to just go one by one into them. Chris, you have the list in front of you, don't you? I do. So what we'll do is I'll, I'm going to read all of them. And then why don't we just take turns discussing each one? Sounds great. Okay. The Eightfold Noble Path. These are the eight things that you need to come out of suffering. Number one, right understanding. Number two, right thought, AKA right intention. Number three, right speech. Number four, right action. Number five, right livelihood. Number six, right effort. Number seven, right mindfulness. And number eight, right concentration. So I'm going to definitely put this list in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I feel like we should caveat this and maybe we can do this at the end too, but like, and we'll do this throughout is that right can be triggering for people because it's like, well, what is right action? Is this the right action or is that the right action? And we will get into this, but, you know, just understand that like the aim of all of this, of the entire of the, of the eightfold noble path is going back to those four noble truths that Anna's talking about, where by keeping your mind empty, we talk about this, getting back to that zero state, these eight things will help you get back to that. And the less triggering that they are for you, right can kind of have different definitions for each person. That may be a controversial statement, but I just want to say that before we get into that. Well, if anyone is a big fan of the Course in Miracles, which which is which they call things by the word true, like yeah. you have forgiveness, you have true forgiveness, meaning like you really understand what forgiveness is. That's in episode 14 of season one. Then they also have like understanding. And then they talk in the book about true understanding. So, so there's like, 
what they're what I think that he's saying when he said there's a right understanding and a right thought is there's like a true, like a deeper, deeper meaning behind things. Like you're going, you're going into the layers of what it could mean. Cause on the first level, it could be like, it could feel like a commandment. That's what they're called. It could feel like a precept or a commandment in which you're not allowed to do stuff and it becomes punitive. And it feels like not the thing that we're talking about. We're talking about how can you take any one of these eight things and you can go to the first level. And then you can start going to high school and graduate level and postdoc on each of one of these different things. And you will unlock different things about what right and true means for each of them. And so keep that in your mind as we go through all these. Okay. So number one, I'm going to just talk a little bit about what does right understanding, right? Understanding means understanding the bigger picture. Okay. So Buddha does talk a lot about reincarnation. And some of you might not agree with that, but if you don't agree with it, just turn the rest of this podcast off. Just kidding. (laughs) No. (laughs) Well, to be honest, I don't know how you're going to digest the rest of this. I don't understand how you can digest the eightfold noble path without an understanding or belief in reincarnation, because the idea is, is that we take birth to, to shed our karma and we'll take birth again until we shed it all. And until that day comes, we just keep coming back here. And when we stop having karma and we get to the total zero state, we become the non-returner and we don't come back. So right understanding means that you understand that this is the quote from the Dhammapada, Dhammapada 1.6. We are but guests visiting this world. Though most do not know this, those who see the real situation no longer feel inclined to quarrel. You too shall pass away. Knowing this, how can you quarrel? Like the right understanding is seeing the bigger picture that like you are here, but just for a minute, like use your time on this earth wisely. Yep. My fear is that we might lose our audience if they don't believe in reincarnation. But, but to be Uh, honest, I feel like you got to believe in reincarnation to understand the eightfold noble path. Like, what do you think? I think we probably lost them when we started talking about past life regression. So, (laughs) So, all right. All right. We're fine. We've already weeded. We've already weeded you out. No, I'm kidding. I don't want to force anyone to feel like, oh, I have to believe in past life, past lives to like believe in this. I just, I mean, I feel like we could do an entire episode on reincarnation and I could tell you, I could talk for two hours about why I believe in reincarnation, but the logical about- and, and you could too. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and so but we're not here to sway anyone. Like either you believe no. at this point, you either believe it or you don't because yeah. we, our experiences cannot, I mean, Buddha even says, do not believe something because you have been told it to be true. Believe it because you have experienced it to be true. Like if you haven't had the, any experiences to believe that reincarnation is true. Don't, don't believe it out of faith. Yeah. Right thought and right intention. Your turn. This is what I like to call the (laughs) Spider-Man. If anyone's seen that, I feel like everyone has so overused this quote, but with great power comes great responsibility is what this one comes down to because right thought is all about the fact that our thoughts are exceptionally powerful because thought always precedes action. Right. So like no matter what happens in the world, like your mental state is incredibly powerful for not only determining what you do in the world, but there's also all the subtle fields that your thought and, you know, affects. And so it determines not only your action, but also your mental state. And so we talk a lot about happiness and sadness and kind of the emotions. And one of the things that both Anne and I have talked about a lot is about the fact that happiness is less of an experience and more of a mental state. It's more of a state that we can come to 
or that we always are. We just have to, to kind of realize that state. So our thoughts are directly in charge of whether or not we reach that happiness state. Right. And it's also directly the predecessor to all of our actions. So with this understanding, everyone is asked to have right intentions. They're basically asked to have intentions that are responsible with the power that you have. This will and go back to the other ones that we see in the list, which are more about what does that actually mean that what is, what does it mean to have the right intention? I, but yeah, I think right intention has a lot to do with Ananda, Ananta, which is non-self yeah, and Ahisma, which is non-harm, like non-harm. Loving- harm. Exactly. So basically right thought, right intention means that you have the intention to do good. Like you have an intention to get to that zero state, to become the most loving, kind person. Like my intention is not, I'm going to become enlightened so that I can get on Oprah and I can like, you know, and I can meet Eckhart Tolle. I want to get in line for those reasons. No, I want to get enlightened because I want to become, I want to get to the zero state. I want to become as Christ-like in my behavior and love or as Buddha-like in my actions and kind and loving and caring and zero and is like non-reactionary. So Mm -hmm. I can just be a better blessing unto this world that really needs it. That's right intention, you know, not the power hungry, fame hungry kind of stuff. Exactly. And that's how I interpret it. No. And I think that, I think that's a, that's a very clear way of saying it that I was kind of struggling to say. So thank you for that. Like, cause it's, it's about, it is, it is about what is your North star? Like what is your, is your, with your power and all the, all the things that you can do with your thought, what is your intention to do with all of that power? Is it something that is, are you trying to, to, to leave? Are you trying to win the game so you can leave it? Or are you just trying to make things as shitty as possible here while you're here? Right? Like it's kind of extreme, but yeah, that's, that would be right thought and right intention. All right. Number three is right speech, which is basically Mm -hmm. essentially don't say shit that hurts people's feelings and don't lie. Yep. Ahimsa. Yeah. Again. And don't lie. He says in the Dhammapada verse 10.5 and six senseless talk brings suffering for it is thrown right back to you. But if you stay like a broken gong and never speak a word, the cycle of idle talk will break and you will pass from sorrow. Essentially, don't just talk for the sake of talking. Don't talk shit about other people. Don't say hurtful things to other people and don't lie. Look, I think, although I'm not hundred percent sure, but I think Buddha would be okay with a white lie if it protects someone from pain, right? Maybe, maybe not. But the point is do no harm unto others. Like be kind with your words. Yeah. I mean, this, this also relates back to what you said, like in terms of the white lie, you know, one of the reasons you're not supposed to do lies, and they talk about this a lot in Vipassana courses, is that it disturbs the balance of your mind, right? So the reason you're, you know, like ultimately, if you're trying to keep your becoming as equanimous as possible, which allows you to become empty, if you're telling lies, and that's that that's like causing ripples in your ponds. And if you do it enough, then it's causing lakes. And if you have all these not lakes, the ripping ripping tides, and if that's the case, then you can't have the steer still clear pond, as Tiknak Khan says. Like you can't have that still clear pond to be able to see down to the truth because your water's churned up with doing lies. And so that's that's also, you know, contributes to right speech. Number four, right action. Right action is all about, it, there, it's probably what rings the closest to a lot of the commandments. If you want to think of it in terms of what are you not supposed to do? Like what is not right action? 
and that's no killing, no sexual misconduct. And sexual misconduct has a lot of connotations. There's a lot of cultural pieces that say, oh, well, cheating would be misconduct. But at the same time, you know, other cultures would say that masturbation is sexual misconduct. And and so you got to kind of take that one with pulling out all the triggering parts or all the, the parts that feel like it's purity culture seeping in or it's shame culture seeping in and kind of say, okay, what does right action mean? Right action means that we act rightly. We act without selfish attachment to our own agendas. So again, it goes back to that zero state, like where, what's my intention? Like, are my actions fulfilling that intention that I have to, to be empty of kind of my own agenda to get something done in the world, but instead, how can I be the most compassionate person that I can? And how can I try and achieve that zero state so that I can be filled up with compassion and love and get the hell out of here? Yeah. I think like, if you want to be extremist about right action, it would mean being a vegan, like not eating animal products, definitely vegetarian, but uh, being vegan would be like an an extremely non-harming version of right action, right? We can debate that or not, but I'm just saying these are, (laughs) these are, these are potential ways you can interpret it, right? Another thing about the sexual misconduct one is like, do no harm. Like if your sexual, whatever your sexual orientation is, as long as you're not harming anyone, as long as you're not directly harming anyone or harming someone by the consumption of a product that was made off of people who were being abused, you know, then it's okay. But there is what's called brahmacharya, which are people who have taken a vow of celibacy because they're like, I don't even want to be sexual at all because I'm going to be so dedicated to my spiritual path that I'm going to be brahmacharya and I'm not going to even have sex. Right. So that's that, like, those are two kind of extreme ways you could go with this uh, right actions number four. Right. And kind of examples of how that is. So with brahmacharya in particular, having what I learned in my yoga teacher course, because a lot of these things y'all may notice are using language that they use in yoga. And we could also go over to the yoga, you know, the yoga path, which is very similar to this, which is ahimsa, brahmacharya, all these, these other languages that we're using are also used in yoga which is not the same as Buddhism, even though they have a lot of overlap. But Brahmacharya, for one thing, is our Swami used to say that she was celibate because of the fact that she needed to build up Shakti within her body. And if she released the energy, then she wasn't, it wasn't available for other people to take because she was this teacher. Um, and part of her teaching was to basically provide inspiration in the form of Shakti or the form of energy to other people. She chose to be celibate because of the intricacies of, of those advanced energetic systems within our body. Right. And so as a teacher, that was, that was what her calling was went to went to. And then with no killing, I feel like this reminds me of the good life. If anyone ever watched that or not the good life, um, the good place, if anyone ever watched that show, there was a joke in it that happened in the second season where you can't buy a tomato without ending up in hell with the bad place. Right. Like, because the food chain and the supply chain of a single tomato was just so entirely crazy that you were definitely exploiting somebody or something along the line, even if it was a fruit and technically didn't harm the the tomato plant when you picked it. Right. And, you know, so you could kind of go down that road and you could get lost down that road or, you know, one of the most beautiful things I've seen is the, um, Jane's, the Jane's, um, there's a, in Rajasthan, 
a amazing, there is an amazing temple and it's made completely out of marble and it's like incredibly intricately like carved and everything. And there are living trees in the middle of it. And these trees are five or six or 700 years old. Like they're exceptionally old because the Jains are, ex are just exceptionally concerned with not causing any harm. So they don't eat garlic. They don't eat any root vegetables that die in order to get harvested. And the monks that are Jains will actually have brooms and those brooms are there to sweep the path of any insects so that they don't harm any insects as they walk, right? So it's like, you can have all sorts of different interpretations of what right action is. Right, wow. Right all livelihood, right. you're next. Right livelihood. Yep. Let me move to right livelihood. So what I wanna say about right livelihood is basically that you know, you could, you could say that in the time of Buddha, they had this belief that like, once you experienced youth, you would go on to like experience a, a chapter of your life where you would just have a begging bowl and travel around and meditate. So basically like your younger years were used to work and make money and your elder, your retirement was, you know, spent with a begging bowl, working on your own inner salvation, your own inner work and, and going around and just asking for money that way. In, in this reality, in our current climate, political capitalistic climate, that's not realistic. Like we're not going to retire and then put on a robe and walk, wander through the streets asking for food. It's not the same culture as it is in Asia where like, you know, in Asia, you will see that sometimes you'll see monks walking around. All they have is a bowl and they go from home to home to get their food and people respect them and revere them. And they, they're basically like holy homeless people. We don't have that infrastructure in the West. So what could we then interpret right livelihood to mean? I believe it means that you choose a livelihood that does not harm others. So uh, an interesting thing, like when I did a, a Vipassana course, which is one of those 10 day courses that we keep talking about where we, one of them is where we met, you know, when it was over this woman, her and her husband own a lot of gas stations, a lot, her and her husband own a lot of gas stations in the Southeast. And they came out of the course, like, oh my gosh, we have to stop selling alcohol now. Like our gas stations all have alcohol in them. We've got to stop selling that. We're going to have, we're going to change. We're going to like update all our gas stations and, and oh, not wow. sell alcohol because right livelihood make, means not making money off of the misery of anyone else. And they believed that they were suddenly like, well, if we're selling alcohol, we're contributing indirectly to maybe domestic violence or DUIs or, you know, like we don't want to sell alcohol anymore. And the teacher of the Vipassana course was like, all right, you just took the course. You're really optimistic. You're really excited. Well, why don't you just sit on that one for a while and, and, and revisit it? Okay. Very, very realistic down to earth response. But the point was, which I thought was beautiful, was that they had this reflection of, hey, let me not make money off of the misery or exploitation of another. And I really like that. Like, like right livelihood, so many so much corruption in the government would be resolved if people were like deciding that they're going to make their money doing the right thing for people and not, you know, not pocketing money, yeah. right livelihood. And like, let's, if we're going to make and distribute meat, let's not do it in the way that's the most economical where we put like, you know, 20 pigs in a tiny stall and no one can move. Let's do it. Let's do it humanely. Like let's be humane about what we decide to do with our jobs or our careers. Yep. Yep. I can, I can say like a story that I had with right livelihood, because for me, this, for some reason, this was the one that like really hit me home when I like first went to Vipassana and I felt that 
if I could do anything, I could do this. And I, and I was, you know, it, I was dealing with a lot of the wounds at the time. So it was probably somewhat of an escapist thing, but which I will admit, but you know, one of the things that I was doing at the time was I was making environmentally quote unquote, environmentally responsible cleaning products. And I was living in New Zealand at the time. And I was meditating multiple hours every morning and, you know, was really dedicating my life to this path. And I remember thinking, I remember contemplating a lot what right livelihood meant from what I was doing, because on the surface, environmentally responsible cleaning products sounds like a great thing to have right livelihood, right? Because you're not harming, you're not putting stuff like EDTA and SLS and all these things that could be bad into whatever it is that you are, you're distributing. But then it came down to like, it also came down to this thing that like, Hey, if you're spending all your time and energy creating something and then it doesn't actually work, like that's also not right livelihood, right? Like making things that break and, you know, not only is it kind of an environmental impact, but it's also a massive waste of effort. And, you know, it kind of Money. really, yeah, yeah it, it kind of really made me recognize that not only did I need to, the most environmentally responsible thing I could have done was to make the most effective thing that I could, that that limited harm to the environment as much as possible. I was obviously still within the context of needing to create a product that had liquid and water and things like that, kind of, this was 10 years ago now, but still, like that is a part of it. Like it can have a complex layers to what actually is right livelihood and making something that is effective and works and, you know, doesn't waste time and doesn't waste it all this kind of stuff. You could go anywhere with that. Yeah. All right. Number six is right effort. Yes. So right effort, you're just doing right effort by listening to this podcast right now. <laughs> Probably not. Just kidding. I don't uh, know. Well, it's what, go ahead. Oh no, I was going to, let's, I think this one out of like all of them, I think this is one of the most important ones. I think so too. I think so too, because right effort, and I want you to explain the sense doors because I can't remember as much about that right now, but I know that with right effort in particular, right effort is all about how can I increase my, my wholesome characteristics you can use the word wholesome and how can I get rid of my unwholesome ones? Right. So basically how can I, you know, the things that we normally attribute to negative behaviors, how can I work to become a better person? And I actually am working to do that. I'm not just hoping for the best or doing something like that. Like I am actually putting in the effort to make myself a, a better person. And I keep using the word better person, but you know, Anna, do you want to expand on this one? Yeah. So, so the right effort has a lot to do with the sense doors. The sense doors are, Buddha said that there are six sense doors, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. And the last one is mind. So there are six. I love that one because in, in, in our regular biology class or whatever, you know, you're like, I've got the five senses, touch, taste, feel, smell here. There's just five. But Buddha's like, okay, all of those create stimulus on your body. Yes. But also mind, like with your mind, you can generate, you know, your mind, you can generate thoughts that arouse you or make you cold or make you hot or make you jittery. Like the mind is also a sense store because the mind can also create sensations in your body. Yep. So that's the sixth one. So the door of the mind or the sense door refers that to our thoughts, emotions, and mental images. So Buddha like broke it all down. He said, all of these sense doors can bring you three different types of sensations, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. 
And the more you meditate, and if you ever want to go into it and do a 10 day Vipassana course, because it takes 10 days to actually hone in, like the minimum it takes for like anyone is 10 days. So with 10 days, you're set. It will teach you how to get so in touch and so like, so make your effort, make your concentration so, 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 so sensitive that you can really detect with all those sense doors if the sensation is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Because what happens is, I, can, I, I guarantee you it happens. You have no clue. A fly lands on your on your cheek. You don't like how it feels. You brush it away before you even think. Now, if you're in a Vipassana course, or if you are a, a meditator following the Eightfold Noble Path, when that fly lands on your cheek, there's going to be a moment when you're going to say, is that sensation pleasant or unpleasant? And then you get to decide how you react. But what happens is, is if you are blind to the, the relationship that you're having with the sense store, which is blind react, blind react, pleasant, I will, pleasant, I'm going to crave more of it. We're talking about the causes of suffering. Unpleasant, I'm going to have aversion to it. Again, one of the causes of suffering. It's like, if you're blindly reacting to the stimulus in your life, whether uh, that are coming in through your sense doors, you're just blindly reacting. You're just a slave to what the world gives you. You're not in control of your mind. You're not in control of your life. You are just a slave to blind reactions that the sense stores are giving you. So right effort means you are going to put your effort where it counts and you are going to, to pay attention and focus and notice when one of those sense stores is stimulated, whether pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, how are you going to respond? just going to blindly react. No, that's, that doesn't work. That That's not going to get you what you want out of life. I'll guarantee that you need to be equanimous. You need to take a step back from the sense doors and say, okay, there's a fly on my cheek. That's unpleasant. What am I going to do about it? You might still come to the same conclusion. I'm going to flee it away. Or maybe by the time you care, it's already flown away. But the point is if you're just going through life and every time something's pleasant, you crave more of it. Every time it's unpleasant, you push it away. Like, how are you any different than a robot in some ways? Yep. Yep. And, and an example of this was the Jessup, Georgia Vipassana center is like inland and complete in the coastal plains of Georgia and like totally filled with mosquitoes. And it was a great experience to understand the sense doors of especially feeling And you would basically be sitting there outside eating and obviously you'd be in noble silence. So you wouldn't be talking to anybody and like be, you know, potentially eaten alive by mosquitoes and having to watch it land on you and then like, you know, blow it off because you weren't supposed to, you know, you took a precept to not cause any harm. So you can't kill mosquitoes and, or you're encouraged to not kill mosquitoes. And so it was this amazing experience. We used to say it was so good for the, um, the sense door of, of feeling of touch, because you were just like, Oh, well, here I am having all of these mosquitoes who could potentially give me so much reaction, blind reaction. Right. Uh, yeah. Right. Um, so right. Mindfulness. That's Let's you. Go. That's you. Oh, is it me? Yeah. Oh, it's my turn. Right. Mont. You helped me a lot with right effort, which I appreciate. Sorry. This was my episode. I was leading this episode. So I did a lot of the research going into it, but Chris and I have both done the Satipatthana Sutta course. Yeah. multiple times. So we were both well-versed in the, in the Eightfold Noble Path. So right mindfulness means basically satipatthana, which means you are mindful every moment of the day. Like I think Buddha said something like, if you stay mindful every moment of every day for X amount of days for X amount of years, you are guaranteed to become enlightened. Remember this? I do. So, so I, I don't do. remember what the magic number was, but it's like, it's so hard, but 
it's so hard to spend an entire day being mindful, but if you can be mindful to the pleasant or unpleasant or neutral sensations on your body, or just be mindful all day, every moment, moment to moment, every single day, that is amazing. Yeah. And, um, the, the truth is for all of us out here who have meditated, we know that we have in a one hour sitting, we have maybe 20 minutes of really good, strong mindfulness and right. our minds wander the other 40 minutes. And for some of us, maybe it's just one minute that, yeah. that, that the mind is not wandering. Maybe, maybe you're awesome and you get 59 minutes out of it. I don't know. But the point is right. Mindfulness means getting to a state that you are mindful every moment, moment to moment mindful. Yeah. Like, you know, if you're reading that book by John Kabat-Zinn, wherever you go, here you are. He talks a lot about mindfulness, being mindful, being present, try to get that space to last a little longer, you know? Yep. And, and like, I, let, let it be all one continuous moment versus I got my, I did my morning routine and then I did my workout and then I did this and then I did that. And then I was thinking this and I was thinking that and day is broken up into all these little chunks like get as much as possible, get it to that state of like one long continuous state of awareness. Yeah. And, and I like, if mindfulness is a word that feels inaccessible, I like to think of it as attention in the sense of like your attention, you're in control of your attention at any given time. I feel like for some reason, attention feels like a, a, a word that's also accessible for the use of mindfulness because our attention is our superpower. It's kind of the only thing, if you were to, if you were to say what, what gift were humans given at any point, our attention is one of those gifts, if not the main gift that we have. And our ability to be mindful is our ability to use that attention to observe and be aware of, our, of, of all the things going on in our systems and all the things like that continuously throughout the day to be present in the current moment. And so that's, yeah. So that relates very well to right concentration, right? Right. That's you. And so right concentration is, it's that 20 minutes that Anna was just talking about. That 20 minutes when you are able to focus your attention on whatever it is that's in your meditation. So you're focusing on your breath, you're focusing it on your sensations, you're focusing it on a mantra, you're focusing it on a flame, like whatever it is, you focus your attention and you have prolonged that period as long as possible. So you develop your concentration so that those periods of focus are not just that are continually extending. Eventually, concentration. Well, okay. So concentration, I feel like has two directions as well. If I was really going to get into the semantics of it, I would say concentration is the length within our four dimensional or three dimensional reality in which we have time. It's the length of time that you are in there, but I know Buddhists also think, and, and also yogis think that concentration is the depth of where mm -hmm. you go. Right. So or the heights in which you go, whichever, which See, way you want to look at to it. Me, mindfulness would be the duration and Interesting. Okay. Would be the, the depth just in my, my world. Right. And so for me, mindfulness is, is the focus, right. And concentration is the length. So it's just a, it, either way, what we're basically saying to you is we are always trying to, if you have right mindfulness and right concentration, you're, you're striving to extend the period of time that you are, your attention is, is focused. 
And that focus, basically the, the heights of right concentration in particular go all the way up to Samadhi, which is, it's like a trance-like state. It's one of the states of super consciousness. If you want to think of it, we have a whole bunch of states of unconsciousness and a whole bunch of states of super consciousness in which we are in a trance-like state and basically in bliss and union with God is what the yogis would say about Samadhi. And beyond that is Nirvana, which we're not going to get into because we've not experienced it. So I don't yeah. like to talk about stuff I don't know shit about. So we're not going to talk Let's about Nirvana. Let's just theoretically talk about Nirvana here for a minute. I think it's full of candy and gold streets. <laughs> well, apparently, according to the Dhammapada, it is a state of no taste, no being, no self, no no touch, no memory. Like, how do you even know if you got to Nirvana if there's no one that got there that can remember it? I, no. I, I, it's very, it's very, we're not going to go into Nirvana because it's just too much. It's yeah. just, right? It always kind of scared me a little bit. But that's because I'm attached to my identity. So, yeah. Yeah. That's why you ain't getting there. <laughs> not, <laughs> yet, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. All right. So in conclusion, we've discussed the four noble truths of Buddha, which were life has suffering in it. There are causes of suffering, which are craving, aversion, ignorance. There is a way out of suffering. And the fourth one being the eightfold path is the way out. And in the way out of suffering, we had the Eightfold Noble Path, which was all the different right mindfulness, concentration, and uh, intention, livelihood, speech, action. What am I missing? Understanding. Understanding and all that. Yeah. All right. Yes. Intention. A lot of different, a lot of different things. We're yeah. going to put them in the show notes. But one last thing I want to, one last thing I want to end with is this beautiful quote. But before I go into the quote, I want to just give you a, a, a breakdown of what it means. Buddha says there is a triple gem, which is Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, meaning Buddha, meaning Buddha is a fully enlightened being. So they're like a great role model of what we should strive for. Dhamma, meaning law of nature. Dhamma, meaning the gift of, of, of truth, the, the understanding of truth, the understanding of nature. And Sangha, meaning your community, your best friend, like the, per, the people you communicate with and share it's like your spiritual community, right? So our your, this podcast could be your sangha. Yep. Your best friend or the people you meditate could be your sangha. And I love that sangha and is put in the same category of Buddha and Dhamma because that is elevating your friendships and your podcasts and your self-help groups or whatever to the yeah. state of a Buddha and to yeah. Dhamma, which is beautiful that he put them in the same category. So your the people, you know, they're tell me who you walk with and I'll tell you who you are. Like, it is so important to pick good friends and good people because yeah. that you really, that really is going to help determine where you go on your path. Anyway. So here's the quote. Now that you understand Buddha Dhamma Sangha, he says, this is Dhammapada verse 14, 12, take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha through true wisdom. You will clearly see the four noble truths and the eightfold noble path, which lead to the release from misery. These are the true refuge. By going to these for refuge, you will be freed from all suffering. Don't take our word for it. <laughs> yeah, seriously. No, seriously. Don't take our word for it. Don't take Buddha's word for it. Just start to notice in your life. When you're miserable, when you're miserable, what was it? If you can break it down, was the cause of your suffering due to craving, aversion, or ignorance? Just see if you notice it. And, and recognize what Anna always says. If something has, if, if you start doing this, it's not about, turning on and off a light switch. It's not like all of a sudden you're not going to get angry anymore. The way that you can recognize that you're making progress on the path is, is my suffering lessening in duration, intensity. And what's the third thing? 
frequency. Frequency. Meaning is my suffering happening less often? Is it mm -hmm. happening in shorter durations? And is it less intense? Exactly. That's, you know, that's as you walk down the eightfold noble path, you've got your yardstick. But yeah, I hope this episode wasn't too boring, even though it was a very philosophically deep one. I loved it. I thought All it right. was, yeah, I, thought, I enjoyed it. I, we enjoyed it, but we were the ones talking. So. <laughs> Can I be the observer of myself and say that the observer of myself also enjoyed it too? Or which I won't know I? if it was good until like we edit it and I listen to it as a, as a, like a mock audience person. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Cool. All right. Thank you, Anna. Till next time. All right. Bye. bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spiritual Fix. Please do us a favor and review us on iTunes if you like us. We would love to see your reviews. We would love to see what you think, and it helps people find us. Thanks so much. And remember, humility, gratitude, acceptance, done. Let me tell y'all a riddle. There are four girls and four apples in a basket. Every girl takes an apple, yet one apple remains in the basket. How is this possible? The answer, one girl took the basket. She took the last apple while it was in the basket. Sometimes all it takes is a perspective shift. This is my specialty, y'all, and I am opening up two spots in the next two months for dedicated journeyers to work with me to find peace, purpose, and most importantly, perspective. In these journeys, we co-create a curriculum that suits your current blocks, goals, and needs, and we use all the tools, shadow work, books, fiction, remote viewing, intuition, meditation, guided journeys, energy healing, dreaming techniques, you name it, we do it, and all to achieve a commonly held set of objectives. And if you're interested in hearing more, Book a free call with me at www.chriswilty.com forward slash discover.